morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving week to you, <laughs> and um, I hope that you are um, excited about uh, celebrating and intentionally reflecting, as we should always, but intentionally reflecting um, on all that we have to be thankful for um, as the people of God, um, as the uh, people um, who are uh, just abounding with God's grace and abounding with his love and care and concern for us, even in the midst of challenges. And how many people could say amen to that? <laughs> okay, even in the midst of challenges, right? And that's always the, that's always the uh, goal is to find what we're thankful for even in the midst of challenges because he doesn't tell us to only be thankful when things are going well. He tells us to rejoice always, right? To rejoice always. And again, he says rejoice. And that's just a better posture um, than having a heart of um, bitterness, you know, um, a heart of uh, feeling like we're always missing something rather than rejoicing in that which he has given us. And ultimately, <coughs> remembering as the people of God that this is never all that there is, right? This life, in this life, we're sojourners. We're passing through. And ultimately, our home is one that Jesus is going to prepare for us, right? This, this home, this earthly home is not our final resting place. And we want to live with thankfulness in such a manner, right? And when we live with an eternal perspective, then we can be thankful in our day-by-day -day experience. Isn't that true? When we remember what's coming, not just what we see immediately in front of us. And that's why we're able to live by faith and not just by, okay, come on, Bible people, sight. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, so my uh, name's Roland. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. It is good to be with you today. And um, I have to tell you, honestly, some of you were wondering if I were, was actually here today because you saw what looked like a blue polar bear come in. And once it drops below a certain temperature, the Jamaican in me does come out, you know, <laughs> and I am covered from top to bottom <laughs> and will be covered until probably May. And so um, that is me passing through the doors. Don't be scared. Um, secondly, I also today felt a little bit like Mr. Rogers. Um, I was in the back during worship because we had to keep the nice carpet. We have a play coming on <laughs> um, after us, and I had to keep the floor nice as with our worship team. And I was changing my shoes in the back, singing, It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. <laughs> a beautiful day for some worship. Would you be my his? <laughs> right? Would you be his? Okay, so with that in mind, <laughs> it is good <laughs> to be with you today. But let me also say this, that we are also so thankful for all of you. Can we say that we are all thankful for all of you, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who've even come to um, learn about the good news of Jesus. We're thankful that you're here with us today, and we're especially thankful for all of those who um, ye, uh, week after week, month after month, month, help us actually put on worship and actually uh, worship the Lord together. So our worship team, our setup team, our children's ministry team, our streaming team, you know, all the people who give, you know, we just want to say thank you. Okay, can we give a round of applause to all of our <laughs> greeters and everybody else? Okay? We are thankful, thankful for you, all of our community group leaders, all of our greeters, everybody. Okay, so Bible time, Bible time, okay, so Bible time, here we go. What we've been doing is we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, actually a series called The Good News According to Luke, The Good News According to Luke. And what we've been doing is we've been going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Luke, 
through the biography of Jesus and allowing Jesus Christ to speak for himself. How many people agree that that's a good idea, right? Let Jesus Christ speak for himself. So many people have opinions about who he is, what he is about, what his values are, or what he's really after in this world. But I love the fact that when we have the Bible, we have the clearest biography allowing Jesus to communicate that to us firsthand, right? And so what we did last week is we were obviously along with Sat in a Boat, and I'm telling you, I've still been gushing over that little snippet. Anybody love that last week? Okay, thank you again, um, dance team, worship team. Okay, so here's the thing about it. Um, we, I've still been gushing over that, but what we also were talking about is the story of the prodigal son, right? And really that we are not just prodigals who get to come home, but even if you've been an older sibling in the house of God and found it difficult to find thankfulness or gratefulness in your heart as you've been faithful in the house, God wants a new posture and a new relationship with you in such a manner. Amen. Okay, and so today what we're doing is we're jumping into Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and Jesus is actually spending a lot of time touching on one of the great idols of our age, which is money. Jesus talking about money in this chapter. And Jesus, actually, if you ever look at the scripture, spends a whole lot of time talking about money. Probably about 25% of his parables, his teaching, were about what he called mammon. And the reason for it is not only because it affects our everyday lives, but how many people know that it affects people's relationship with God too. And it affects their daily peace of mind. It affects their hearts. It affects how they relate with the world around them. And God says, listen, I'm a practical God. And what I do is I address all the matters that pertain to life and godliness, right? He's dealing with all the things that pertain to life and godliness that we might actually be imitators of God and so be set free in our living. And so our focus today is this, that we need to allow God to show us what actually governs our lives that we might adjust to find our reward in Christ. We need to allow God to define for us or show us what actually governs our lives that we might adjust to actually find our reward in Christ. And how many people know that's a better idea? Okay, here we go. Let Jesus speak for himself. Okay, we're going to break this up, um, break this down today into three, part. we're gonna, three parts. We're going to talk about, number one, who's in charge. Number two, what's the law got to do with it? And then number... <laughs> Okay, okay. I know, I have fun preparing the messages. Okay, and then number three, where's your reward? Okay, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given us, given it to us to help not only govern our lives, but liberate us. That, you, God, you call this law, the law of the spirit of life that leads to ultimately freedom. And God, we're asking that as you touch on the things that most pertain to our everyday experience and our everyday walks, that you would help us to per have a perspective like you do, understand like you do, and then live as you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when we talk about first the idea of who's in charge, we want to uh, start with this statement that you can ultimately follow the money to see who's in charge of your life. Simple statement, right? But you can follow the money to see ultimately who's in charge of your life. And Jesus talks about it in this way. Luke 16, starting in verse 1. He, meaning Jesus, also said to the, his, to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. 
Now, if you are familiar with financial news, uh, you might have heard about FTX recently and the big blow up that took place in our community. If you're not, maybe you've stayed away from cryptocurrency. That's fine. Okay, but here's the point. There was a big blow up this week, right? A massive one based on somebody wasting possessions, okay? And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what should I do? Since my master is taking my management, management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Interesting. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, everybody say another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant, everybody say no servant, which includes you, which includes me, which includes everybody. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, here we go. Number one, here we talk about when Jesus is referring to the idea of money, how many people know the old adage where people say that money is the root of all evil, right? How many people have heard that before? But how many people know that that's actually not what the Bible says? The Bible actually says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money itself is an inanimate object that you can use for either good or evil. But in this particular setting, Jesus is talking to a group of Number one, his disciples, which all of us should be attaining to in here. And then number two, a group of Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, you have to understand, weren't just the religious leaders of the day, but they were religious leaders because they were people who not necessarily found themselves in occupational ministry. If you understand the history of the Pharisees, they were just zealous people like you and I who actually wanted to take the worship of God outside of the temple and actually be devoted to God in all their ways. That's who the Pharisees were. So they tried to say, here's how you put the law of God into practice on a daily basis, right? They took the uh, commands of God and they said, this is how we 
obey God and actually live a holy life unto him. But when Jesus was actually talking to them, he understood something that he came to uh, in the citation of the scripture that the Pharisees actually had in their heart of hearts, though they wanted to serve God in most things, they had a love of money in their hearts. They had a love of money in their hearts. And in their hearts, what happened is that the money that God had actually entrusted to them became something that was unrighteous. Unrighteous. Not unrighteous because of what it is, but unrighteous because of how it was utilized. Now, when we look at the parables of Jesus, we understand that Jesus is giving us similitudes. This is basically how life is, how life functions. If you want to understand life, these are understandable stories that I'm giving you so that you can use them to act as a mirror in your own life, right? You can use them as a mirror, and through that mirror, not only understand certain things about God, but understand things about the world around you and how he's called you to live in it. And when Jesus is giving this parable, he actually starts by talking about a rich man. He talks about a rich man, and let me present to you that the rich man he's talking about who owns it all is ultimately not us, even if you have a fat bank account in here. It's not us, but it's him. That he is the one who owns cattle on a thousand hills, right? That God is the one who already said in Luke chapter 12, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, because your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And as you put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he cares for you. And how about this? Wants to provide for you. Isn't that good news? A heavenly Father, and that's good news even in the midst of a looming recession, as economists are talking about, right? When there are layoffs, bountiful layoffs that are going on because of the inflation and the tightening of our economy. Now, the thing about it is that when we have this trust in God, God's saying that he's the rich man who had a manager, a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting not the manager's, but his possessions. Let's just start there. Can we put that scripture up? He says there was a rich man who basically was cart, um, who had a manager, and this manager, charges were brought against him that this man was wasting not his own possessions, but the rich man's possessions. Now, the idea that we're starting with is the understanding that when God provides for us, though he provides for us as a heavenly father, ultimately everything that he provides for us is still his. It's still his. That when I work a job, when you work a job, right, I have a little side hustle, you know what I mean, with my son Emmett, you know what I mean, doing a little eBay business, right? And though I had cards, plentiful cards growing up, meaning sports cards, and also comic cards, come on Marvel Sears, okay, had uh, plenty of sports and uh, comic cards growing up, right? I ultimately knew it was a stewardship to me, right? Because the one in my, (laughs) the house, the one in whose house I lived actually owned it all, Right? meaning that my dad was the one who was providing for my food. My dad was the one who was providing for my shelter. My dad was the one who was providing for the clothing on my back, right? So ultimately, though I got to enjoy those sports cards and also comic cards, at the end of the day, ultimately, it all belonged to him. It all belonged to him. And anything that I was able to enjoy, I was ultimately a steward of. I was ultimately a steward of. How many people remember back in the day when you finally got your license? Anybody remember that? (laughs) How many people know that your parents' blood pressure went up just a notch? Okay? 
Why? Because even though you had something that gave you new rights and new flexibility and new freedoms in your life, ultimately, probably, that vehicle that you were driving still belonged to them. And that became very apparent to me in not my first, not my second, but my third wreck. <laughs> okay? Because ultimately, I appeared before a judge multiple times because of my reckless living, the way that I mishandled that which had been entrusted to me. I was a singer, and I would be driving on the road. Anybody like me driving on the road, and sometimes you lose yourself? You're like, yes, Lord. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you're in another lane. Listen, I'm telling you, you can drive with me. I don't do that all the time. I'm just saying, I have been known, I have been known to do such things. Okay, but the thing is, is that ultimately, I wrecked cars, and I wrecked people's cars. And as a teenager... Guess how many people knew that I had to pay for that? When I wrecked my car, Lighten, which was my parents' car, and I wrecked my friend's car, what, what I mean by that is the neighbor's car, and I drove even a family into a ditch before, right? Because I was turning without looking, and then the family's like trying to steer out of my way, and they were okay. Everybody's fine, okay? Nobody ready to walk out, okay? <laughs> Listen, it's like I drove people into a ditch before, and then I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And how many people know when you got kids screaming in the background, right, and then you're trying to get your car out of the ditch, sorry, just uncut it. They were like, Listen, man, who's going to pay for this? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't got a job. My job is school. I'm just going to school. And guess who ultimately had to pay for it? Who? My dad. Dad, thank you. Okay, he's probably watching today. <laughs> okay, but when I appeared before a judge, ultimately he said, listen, you, are gonna, you or someone else is going to have to pay for the decision that you just made. Because ultimately, I was a steward of that which my dad had entrusted to me, meaning the vehicle, and I mishandled it. And when I mishandled it, there was still a price to pay, right? And the thing is, is that he paid, his insurance went up, and then ultimately, how many people knew that my keys were taken away? My keys were taken away because I mishandled not that which was mine, but I mishandled that which was his. Make sense? And what God's saying in this, um, in this chapter is that ultimately, listen, I'm the one providing for you, and we thank him. I'm the one who's making sure you have a roof over your head, food in your belly, right? Things that clothe you. Even how about this? Experiences, right? That's what we're all about today. People in the millennial generation, you don't want stuff. You want experiences, right? Everybody wants experiences. But how many people know, even though he's providing those things for you, we can be those who are still guilty of mishandling that which belongs to him. And we often mishandle it because we don't think that it's actually his. We work for it. We pay our bills. We're the one who pushes send, right? We're the one with the paycheck and it's our name on it, right? So ultimately we think it's mine. We're like Gollum, right? My precious. It's mine. I work for that. Blood, sweat, and tears. It's all mine. And God's like, really? Really? Ultimately, we are stewards. Everybody please say that word with me, stewards. 
what God is, is he's the rich man that owns it all. And what we are, are stewards. Stewards of that which he's entrusted to us, otherwise in this parable, known as a manager. We are managers of that which God has entrusted to us. Now, why would Jesus ultimately call money unrighteous? Well, scholars have actually suggested at least three reasons. Number one, that the money is acquired. If people call, Jesus was calling the money unrighteous, it's because of, not again, the money itself, but because of the use of it, right? Number one, the money is acquired through unrighteous means. I know, like, we love preaching the gospel in this city, and I love talking to all types of people. I love talking to people who are well-off. I love talking to people who have nothing, right? And I love talking to some people on the streets, and I've talked to them before and said, like, listen, man, I hear what you're saying about Jesus in this gospel, but, you know, what I'm doing is I'm selling drugs to provide for my family right now. I'm selling drugs to provide for my family right now. You need to show me a better way if you're going to tell me that there's a kingdom, (laughs) you know what I mean? that's coming. And I'm like, listen, let me introduce you to some people, please, right? That's part of the appeal. But how many people know that you can actually acquire money through unrighteous means? And then money becomes unrighteous, right? If you acquire money through stealing, if you acquire it through all types of things, it's obvious. Okay. Number two, money can be unrighteous because selfish desires and the use of wealth lead to a life dominated by personal gratification and self-indulgence rather than for the care and well-being of others. How many people would agree that that would actually be unrighteous? It doesn't mean that you, God doesn't want to bless you, as we've talked to you um, about before. God blesses his people so that they can be a what? Blessing, right? But it can be unrighteous if we're dominated by self-indulgence. How many people would agree that that's a temptation in the society in which we live? Self-indulgence. I'm not talking about self-care. Self-care can actually be healthy, right? Healthy. But self-indulgence can be unhealthy. Number three, it can be unrighteous because the corrupting influence of wealth can lead to godless living, meaning in sin, doing this wrong things with it, or without regard to God and his purposes. That's just as godless. Does that make sense? It's like if you're living in a godless manner, if you're living in sin, that's obviously godless, right? Because you're living in opposition to the commands of God. But godless means without God. And whenever you're stewarding what he's entrusted to you without thought of him, that also is godless. Does that make sense? It's a challenge to us all, right? It's a challenge to us all. And the truth is, is that God gives both miracles and wealth to be utilized as a part of his redemptive plan in creation. Part of his redemptive plan in creation. When he talks about the wealth, he says, listen, use unrighteous wealth to what? Gain friends for yourself so that after you've, what? Gone on to that judgment, you know what I mean? You might be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, who controls that? Okay, come on, people. Who controls that? He does. And this is a challenge for us all. Now, what do I mean by the fact that he uses unrighteous wealth for his purposes? Well, I love how Timothy Keller continued to talk about it. He said, Christianity, therefore, is perhaps the most materialistic of the world's faiths. 
Jesus' miracles were not so much violations of the natural order, but a restoration of the natural order. God did not create a world with blindness, leprosy, hunger, and death in it. Jesus' miracles were signs that someday all these corruptions of his creation would be abolished. Christians, therefore, can talk of the saving of the soul and of building social systems that deliver safe streets and warm homes in the same sentence, with integrity. Because God's coming to redeem a fallen world, not just in mind, not just body, not just soul, but creation itself. And part of what we do when we steward what he's entrusted to us is be a part of that redemption. Does that make sense? That's why rather than just throwing out your old clothes, what are we doing? Gathering them so they can be utilized by someone in need. Rather than it going in a trash bin, it actually can be useful for actually expressing God's love, care, concern for those in need. And when we live as stewards and not owners of our resources, it demonstrates where our faith truly lies. God's saying that honestly, any human achievement can be exalted amongst men, but not done for the glory, but when not done for the glory of Christ, can be an abomination in God's sight. Can be ultimately an abomination in God's sight. The question that we need to ask ourselves, not sometimes, but continually, is what pursuits and lifestyle choices have you been attempting to justify before God, but which are incongruent with his word? The things that are highly valued amongst men can be, what he says, detestable in his sight. And I'd like to tell you, it's almost like carbon monoxide, right? The sin of greed is like carbon monoxide. The sin of wastefulness of his possessions is like carbon monoxide. And carbon monoxide is dangerous because unless you have a, a what? A detector, an alarm, right? Then you can be around it, choking on it, without even realizing it's there. Without realizing it's there in the room. Is that true of me? You better believe it. Is it true of you? No, I'm not like you, Rowan. <laughs> of course it is. Okay? Let's go on. What's the law got to do with it? <clears throat> the law of God ultimately keeps the plumb line straight, even when our circumstances change. Now, what's interesting you'll find is that in this chapter, Jesus continues talking about money, but he takes a little break when he talks about another topic called divorce. Adultery. It's an interesting thing in the progression of this scripture. And in Luke 16, verse 16 through 18, it says, The law and the prophets is right in the context of what we just read. The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Again, a lot of Greek translators actually say that it can also be translated, go out and forcefully invite people into it, right? But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, let me also say this, that obviously Jesus in other places also said that adultery, that marriage is to be valued by God, right? What God has joined together, let man not separate. How many people know that God values marriage in here? 
Okay, God values marriage in here. But he says, unless for the reason of marital unfaithfulness, which is an unfortunate circumstance that I've had many a friend deal with. He says, unless for the point of marital unfaithfulness, let a man not divorce his wife. Now, why was Jesus saying that? He was saying that because in that particular culture, there were certain religious streams of thought which were actually saying that it was okay to divorce your wife for any and everything. Any and everything. If she displeased you in the way she cooked, be gone with you. If she was unfaithful, right, in terms of sexual morality, of course, be done with you, right? If she displeased you in other ways, there were actually explanations of the law where people were giving even other religious people the opportunity to do whatever they wanted and find any reason that they could not to do what God required. That's what was happening here. And Jesus was of a train of thought where he was saying, hey, listen, no, we're going to value what God values based on what he's already said in his word. Now, what does the law actually do for us? It actually keeps us on track whenever life circumstances change and whenever the natural proclivity of looking out for numero uno rises up in our hearts. This is what the law of God does. Has anyone ever found that God has commanded something that cut against your own will? Anybody at all? That cut against your will. And you, but when it cut against your will, you actually had plenty of reasons why you could justify you were going to do something other than what God said to do. Anybody ever been there before? Can I have an example? Anybody want to share besides me today? Okay, that's okay. I'm on the one with the mic. Okay, here's the thing. God's law is a plumb line to us. And in this example, he's saying, ultimately, I'm telling you, though you would have a natural proclivity to stray, look out for number one, right? One of the main, main reasons for divorce today is what people classify as what? Irreconcilable differences. Now, I've had plenty of friends who have been divorced, not by, because of unfaithfulness, but because we just fell out of love, right? And we just don't get along anymore, right? And what a lot of times my friends that I've been talking to are really saying to me is, listen, I've gotten tired of putting myself as number two when they've been number one in the home. And I'm tired of actually having to put to death my own desires and my own feelings, right? I want me to be in the midst of these things. Now, how many people know it's easy to gravitate to something like that if you don't have a governor helping you to go in another direction? When I first got married, right, it was the law of God that actually told me, I've, I've admitted, and not just admitted, I've confessed this publicly to you before right? Then when I first got married, it was all about the issues that I saw in my wife and nothing about what I saw in me, right? And I went, and let me, can, I, can I be honest with you? There were times in my sin that I raised my voice. Anybody ever raised your voice before or been harsh before? And I found all the reasons why I was offended and justified in responding in that way, in that moment, to my lovely, beautiful bride. Because I felt like she had done something wrong to me, and therefore, God, 
If you're not going to handle this, somebody needs to. (laughs) And then I opened my Bible, and then he told me through his word, hey, listen, you're praying to me, but husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Because if you're harsh with your wives, God won't hear your prayers. And so all of a sudden, I thought I was being this righteous man, taking the things that I needed to God, and God rebuked me by that unchanging word. That everlasting, ever-living word. I was corrected no matter how I wanted to justify myself in the moment. So what's the law got to do with it? We can always justify the reasons we're not doing or even using the things God's entrusted to us. Whether it be a relationship, whether it be the unrighteous mammon, whether it be our time, whether it be our talents, we can always justify why we're not using it the way God himself intends for us to use it. But he has a plumb line as a safeguard for us to say, I know your proclivities. I know your natural habits, but I'm telling you, this will deliver you in the midst of that. The law of the spirit of life, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. How many people say amen to that? Thank God for his law. The law and the prophets were affirmed by Jesus as perpetual standards for the way that we should live and govern every area of our lives. There was a man named Frederick Lewis Donaldson in the West, who preached in Westminster Abbey in London in March, of 20, <clears throat> March 20th of 1925, who said this. Listen, these are some of the things you need to be um, careful of. He said, ultimately, these are the seven social sins. Wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, worship without sacrifice, and politics without principle. If you're looking for things that actually God is trying to adjust through his word continually, it's the things that pertain to everyday life. Does that make sense? But so many of us try to relegate our worship of God just to moments like this. Just a moment's like this. What can we sing about? How loud can we get? How loud can we clap? And we sway and dance. And God's like, listen, I want more of your life than just that moment. And I'm going to touch every area so that you might be wholly devoted to me. And all through my word, wholly set you free. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. The law of God is a direct reflection of the character and eternal desires of God for his people. I already said it's a plumb line, and the New Testament is this. It brought the law from a mere exterior obedience to an internal motivation that increased rather than decreased the expectation of God's godliness from us, right? Of godliness from us. The expectation went from just an exterior thing to an interior thing. And how many people know that with the law of the spirit of life, he upped the ante, didn't decrease it? Anybody realize that? In the Sermon on the Mount, how many people remember the Sermon on the Mount? And he said, You have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you even hate someone in your heart, You've already committed 
murder. Why? Because he's taking it from the external to the internal. He said, you have heard that it was said because we just talked about it. Don't commit adultery. I talk to guys about this all the time, right? And they're like, listen, bro, I'm a free man. I'm not married. And I'm like, let me finish the scripture. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Why? And I always explain this to people because you will do what you find opportunity to do if you think you could do it without consequence and get away with it, right? So Jesus was dealing with the motivation and not just the result. He said the kingdom of God is within you and I'm trying to get by the word and the spirit of God this word in you so that it might actually reflect my kingdom and my glory. Make sense? So he's not decreasing it, he's upping the ante. When he talks about, people always talk about, well, am I expected to tithe? I'm like, listen, bruh, tithe is the floor, not the ceiling. Does God call you to be less generous now that Jesus has arrived? Jesus is like, oh, I fulfilled the law, so now you can keep it all. Jesus said, no, be more generous. Why? Because you're storing up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. But so many people sell out because they're consumed with only what they see today or what they experience today. And Jesus addressed this head on. Last point. We have to ask ourselves the question, what's our reward? We don't want to sell out. How many people know that's a pejorative? Whenever somebody's talking about others and they use the word sell out, they're not talking about good things. Don't be a sellout. He says, don't sell out now. Hold out and order your life around the reward of God. Amen to that? Don't sell out. Order your life around the reward, the eternal reward of God. And Jesus said it this way. There was a rich man. Now, not talking about God the Father anymore, but talking about people like you and me. He said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and... Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Right? (laughs) Conviction, right? Clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Come on, Chicago foodies. Sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the finger, the the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What's he talking about? The word of God. 
They have Moses and the prophets telling them about remember the poor, be concerned about others other than yourself. He has Moses and the prophets saying that over and over again. Don't just live for now, live for later, right? And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. If they just see a miracle, they'll finally repent. And what he said, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, the testimony of the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Why? Because it's a heart issue. It's not a matter of the facts. It's a heart issue. We have more facts today and available to us about the life, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than at any time in history. Why? Because it's at our fingertips. But it's not that we don't change because we don't have the facts. It's because it's a heart issue. He said, even if somebody comes and does a miracle, even if somebody comes and repent, like brings that resurrection from the dead right in front of your eyes, would that change you? That's the question. Would it change you? Talk to people all the time. I'm like, believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Put your hope in what he did for you at the cross. And they're like, I need evidence. And I'm like, if he came right here, right now in Starbucks, and said, I'm the living God. Look, put, put your hands in my wrist. Put them in my side. Would you turn from your sexual immorality? Would you turn from your drunkenness that day and serve him? Well, probably not. Right. Because it's a heart issue, not a matter of the evidence. And God is ultimately asking the question, what and who is governing your life? Is it you? Is it your money? Is it your desire for experiences? Or is it God? Too many people cash in early on life's rewards. And I'm going to give you ultimately this picture. This is a uh, chart of the stock of Amazon. And all along the way, <laughs> and how many people use Amazon? Anybody in here? Anybody heard of Amazon? Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so this stock chart, right? And people from its IPO were cashing out all along the way as the price of the stock continued to rise. How many people wish that you bought Amazon here? Anybody? <laughs> How many people would be sad if you sold here? <laughs> but that's what people do in life all the time. God's like, I'm telling you, don't use up all your reward now. Don't get all that you expect to get now. There is an eternal life to come. Live for tomorrow, not just today. Live for the life to come, not just today. And ultimately, this, I love this quote. This is what I'm going to end with that we don't want to find ourselves in Hades because we live lives of self-indulgence today. You hear? Love this quote. Last quote by Timothy Keller. He said, I asked her, meaning a woman that he was talking to, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace that God gave us to save us through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, what's so scary about that? And she replied something like this. If I was saved by good, my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would 
deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. We'll end there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unmerited grace that you've given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, even as you've given it all, God, we're praying that you would liberate our hearts from the deceptive rewards of this life and look to the rewards that you have for us eternally. In a simple prayer, if there's anyone who says, you know what, I need help today. I need help realizing that everything that I have is not mine, but God's. And I need help to be not like the wicked manager, but uh, I want to be like a faithful manager in all that I do. But I need God's help in my heart to set me free. If that's you, I'd like to first start by praying for you. You can just lift your hand. Is there anyone who says, God, I need help in giving my all to you? Okay? Anyone else? Okay? Anyone else? Father, I pray that you would meet the humility of heart. You said you oppose the proud, but give your grace to the humble. And God, I pray that you would meet them with grace today and enable them to be set free, giving their all for you just like you gave your all for them. And for anyone else who says, you know what, I'm in here today, but I've never given my life to Jesus. I've been living in sin. I've lived, been living in rebellion and selfishness. And I know that if I were to face God in judgment today, I would be like that rich man in Hades, in torment for my sin. But I don't want it. I know Jesus lived the perfect life that I should have lived and on the cross died the sacrificial death that I should have died. And three days later rose from the dead so that I could have new life in him. And I want to turn my life over to Jesus today. I know this is my moment, whether here in person or online. If you're online, people will be there for you to stand with you and pray with you. Is there anyone who says that needs to be me today? I need to turn my life over to Jesus and say he is going to be my Lord. Anyone at all? Well, Father, I pray for every person in here that as we go into this Thanksgiving week, we'd all be circumspect that we'd allow you to really convict us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, and that we'd have great joy, great thankfulness for the way that you've liberated us. In Jesus' name, amen.